Hey now. And welcome to the Sitcom Club, where we have the complete team, the Fantastic Four, back together again. Where hey, in addition to myself, Mooncat, Ocho, how you doing? I'm generally okay, considering... Well, we'll come to that. Morgan Strovia, how are you doing then? Just about coping as about what we're about to talk about. We'll come to that. And finally, and we haven't spoken to you for a while, DCT, how are you doing? And you're back, I believe, from the, uh, the USA of America. I am indeed. It was an adventure. Uh, not not much sitcom action out there, I, I admit, but it was good fun. Surely there must have been. I mean, you might not have gone looking for sitcom action when you were there, but surely if you'd gone through the television dial, there'd be all manner of sitcom or sitcom delights, depending on what channel you're on, syndicated stuff and all sorts. I think the closest I got to that was uh, when uh, Ocho and I teamed up and I talked about John Inman on Hollywood Boulevard. With his odd man is... out. <laughs> I think we, I think at this juncture we were. I think this must be a first for John Inman to even be spoken about in Hollywood Boulevard. At any juncture, I think we were indeed the odd men out. But it was a great adventure. It was good fun. We walked everywhere. My general advice to anyone is to go to Los Angeles is to um, drive. We didn't. And yes, it was very interesting. Went to the podcast festival, so you never know. Maybe, maybe next year we'll uh, join in. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be on the stage talking about a sitcom. That none talking of about how we survived this monstrosity. I was going to start this show by effectively sort of overseeing a witch hunt. I was going to try and recall which one of us had actually suggested that we do this particular show as our oh i remember which week. one well yeah and now that i've also remembered then i've decided uh, i'm going to drop the witch hunt and instead i'm going to offer a profuse apology not only to yourselves but also to the listeners as well i don't know why i chose this show i mean okay i know why because Ocho, we've been going a bit highbrow in recent episodes. We've gone all sort of Channel 4 with the last one, with Map of the Shia. We're going to have to redo that as well, because I just realised after it was all finished and uploaded, how much I left out. Well, we've still got Series 2 to do, so Map of the Shia That's true. Okay. So we wanted to sort of go back to base level, so to speak. And I mean, what, what I... Carlton television level, you mean? Have I sent you the DVD of the Carlton Comedy Playhouse yet? Not yet, no. Right, wait for that to come, and you'll wish that you just... If you'd thought about that for a second longer, you would have said, yes, I've definitely had that, thanks very much. But no. So yeah, I mean, okay, I've got a strong constitution when it comes to this kind of stuff. Ocho, I've admitted to you that I previously set the alarm for a Sunday morning to watch Plaza Patrol on cable. I joined Love Film specifically so I could hire that Beryl Marston on DVD. I even laughed at some parts of the right way. And yet, this was, I'm going to be honest, a bloody great chore. Come back, Mrs. Noah, 1978, Molly Sugden in space. So we're saying that he's a glutton for punishment, listeners. There are some shows that even I cannot stomach. And I've seen episodes of Yes, My Dear. Well, we have to flip back a little... Because originally our choice for sweet lowbrow air after Map and Lucia was going to be the Whackers. Yes, indeed. And um, that has a bad reputation. It's got a terrible reputation. Yeah, and without spoiling when we finally do tackle the Whackers, it's okay. Yeah. I don't see right. where the bad reputation comes from. Come back, Mrs. Noah has a bad reputation. Ah. Who would like... I don't, I don't know if like's quite the right word here, but who would care to volunteer a concise synopsis of the plot as it is? Well, I'll have a go at it. Bertrand Noah's won the Good Cook of the Year competition in 2050. 
Now, as part of her pride, she's got to tour Britain's very own Britannia 7 spacecraft, which has been developed over time with billions of pounds on it. She goes on the tour, and it's safe to say that uh, not everything goes to plan. I think I'm actually giving it more plot than it deserves, but yeah, that's a very, very good description of it. Okay, so let, let's just set the scene here. Pilot goes out in December of 1977. The show itself goes out over the summer of 1978. Ocho, your thoughts? <coughs> I can kind of see how this might have worked. In fact, if you want, if you want to see a relatively successful spin on this idea, not the science fiction aspect, but the stranded aspect... Gilligan's Island. And the thing about Gilligan's Island is they tried to have representations of different levels of society. And you had your technocrat, your blue-collar guy, Midwestern farm girl, movie star, millionaire, and his wife. And how they all function when they're all forced together. I think they're trying to do something a bit clever like that, but they haven't really thought it through. Everybody just bunged together... They've got two posh guys who, as much as Donald Hewlett and Prince Charles are a great double act, what's his name? <laughs> Michael Knowles. They're recreating the roles from Eight and a Half Hot Mom. Yeah, but there's one too many here. If you're going to have different personalities fought together, you don't really want two guys with the same personality. And also, there's actually just thinking about Mystery Science Theatre as well, that whole stuck in space aspect i just remember a phrase joel hodgson used to use occasionally which was high energy prop comic this is low energy prop comedy a <laughs> couple of times an episode here's a gadget let's press a button and it will do something moderately amusing like that stupid are you being served with flashing santa just a thing of his it will press a button and something look that looks a little bit rude might happen well the thing is that in, in i being served the prop gag generally speaking, works. And it works because it's a sideline to the main plot. So Mr. Mash will come on and he's got some device and there'll be some to and fro and then it will sort of malfunction somehow. But that's not taking up 20 minutes of the plot. It's taking up maybe two or three minutes. I'm going to say um, something controversial. There is one scene in one episode that's quite good. Ah, okay, don't say which one it is yet. I won't. Because we'll see, we'll see if we can predict. We'll see if we can predict which one it is. And you've also got Joe Black, not the same Joe Black as in Brad Pitt, uh, who's playing the, the light bulb changer. You've got, obviously, Molly Sugden, who's the winner of the competition, and then Ian Lavender. Now, I'm going to play our favourite game of swapping actors later on when it comes to Ian Lavender. But you said to me, sure that you find Ian Lavender quite annoying in this. Yeah, he's mean. It's one thing to kind of, you know, bounce snappy jokes and everybody kind of does that in sitcoms but he's at that kind of what what the adam faith show house that jack built level he's just like always looking for an opportunity to be nasty to mrs noah it's not set up and gag i think possibly because it's not that well written a lot of what he says is a bit of a reach it's not an obvious comeback it's just like oh he's reached out there just for the sake of being unpleasant Ian Lavender's character, Clive Cunliffe, the reporter who gets stranded, you can almost see that they've written the part almost like he's 
Mr. Lucas from Are You Being Served? Boggs, you've just, because... you have just read my mind as exactly what I was just alluding to there when I said to Ultra about how I was going to suggest an actor replacement. And by the time I got to episode four, I was thinking this should have been Trevor Bannister. Yeah, yeah, because Trevor Lucas and uh, Molly Sugden as Mr. Lucas and Mrs. Slocum, they would have that sort of banter between each other that they would get on each other's nerves and you can see that it was almost like recycled lines. So DCT, you picked up on the the issue of the pacing within the show. Yes, there wasn't any really. I mean, I, I was quite surprised really the fact that in the second episode it gets a round of applause or two at certain points. It's like, oh well, the prop made a fart noise, or more or less, instead of it's just slightly appalling. But I got the impression that it's weird. The premise itself has legs, but the pacing and the tone of it was really... I think what it was is that there wasn't enough danger at stake. There wasn't enough risk. If you look at Red Dwarf or Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that covers these familiar grounds, the appeal for those is that it's this element of coziness up against an actual danger. With Red Dwarf, it nails in by the end of the first episode that everybody is dead. This is a, a weird and terrifying, lonely circumstance. But the coziness comes from from the characters. With Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you've got the quintessential average English bloke of the time and this alien who who's still learning himself. And, and the concept is that the Earth gets destroyed, but they're on an adventure together. And so there's, the coziness comes from them trying to maintain that sense of stability. So when you look at Come Back Mrs. Noah, where you've got almost the joke stems from, well, <laughs> in 50 years' time, there'll still be a strong northern woman in her 50s, 60s. Uh, and then just this sense of, well, none, none of the characters stand out and there isn't panic. There isn't any pa- because of the pacing. I think the pacing is, is key to the fact that it falls flat and the fact that there's no risk factor. If you were to get blasted into space, you would panic, wouldn't you? Yeah, they're all going round, uh, let's say, in one of the episodes, say, have a tea party. It's almost like that atmosphere, to say, oh, well, we're going into space, let's have a cup of tea. Pretty sort of ridiculous. It is part of that gadget comedy problem. This should be a dangerous situation. They're going to be stranded, they might die. But the problem is, every time there is a slight problem in the plot, they just pull out another gadget that solves it. Oh, we can get fresh eggs. Oh, we can create clones. Everything is, oh, we've got we've got a button that does that, and it'll probably make a fart noise while we do it. So there's never this sense that there really are... Not that it needs angst or genuine interstellar loneliness, but just a little sense that they want to get home. There's almost this kind of thing that they're kind of, oh, we'd like to get home, but let's press a button. And also, I mean, you've got, for example, in previous work of David Crofton, Jeremy Lloyd or David Crofton, Jimmy Petty, you've got examples of them tackling, you know, situations which you might think weren't particularly hilarious. I mean, obviously, you've got, for Dad's Army, you've got the entire backdrop of World War Two going on, and... Something like they didn't have hot mum. You've got the fact that you know they're all cooped up together and their loneliness, and the fact that they're trying to keep their morale up and so on. And even are you being served occasionally, will have little moments of carefully handled 
pay for and so on. So it's not as if that's something that you just don't get with these particular writers. It's not as if you're asking for something that you just shouldn't expect in this kind of show. Like we were saying just before, that it is too cosy, the whole setup. It's almost like, oh, everyone's solved their problems. Yes, it, the future might be different. Ha ha ha, etc, etc. These things are happening. Cloning, we can do this, we can do that. But it just seems too tame, it does. The situation with regards to pacing and the structure of the episodes, it looked like from episode two onwards, it looked like, I mean, this this was all the way up to episode six, you had around about seven or eight minutes of plot development per episode, and then you had about 20 or 21 minutes of general faffing about. So episode two, for example, you, having had, the repeat of the pilot episode as episode one, so you've established what's going on. Episode two, they discuss the, the possibility of trying to make contact with them and bring them back to Earth and so on. And that's sort of like your first ten minute chunk of the program. And then the rest of it is Molly's tucked in Eden Lavender trying to get ready for bed. Because of the pacing, it doesn't really become a conventional sitcom till about episode five, when they actually go to their living quarters. Now, you would think that they would do that, say, episode two or three. Okay, you got the first one, which was a pilot, to say how they got there. Number two, it's obviously they're there, what they're going to do now. But number three should be, right, they're there now, they've got to live there, right. They've obviously got to be solving a problem to get back. It just keeps on dragging on and on. Will they? Won't they? It doesn't develop. Ocho, there's one particular episode where, via the news presenter interviewing the crew on the ship, we get introduced to some of the people who are related to those on the spacecraft. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of that, to be honest. I don't think it would have been handled well. So it's not like, oh yeah, they're, they're really onto something there. Keep going with that. It's kind of like, oh great, this is another setup for some more poor gags. So, could you reveal then, Ocho, you said there was one part within the six episodes that gave you some loud music. Well, I just remembered, of course, that possibly one of the reasons it wasn't too bad was that it was very, very similar to a scene in Porridge. When they're building their model of the solar system, yes, and they're yeah. arguing about the size of the sun, who gets to hold what, and then, because it has a nice build to it, it starts, let's have a simple idea. Okay, we're just going to demonstrate orbit and we're going to do, build a little scale model of the solar system to explain a fairly simple concept to mrs noah and it just gets complicated and complications pile on complications and in the end they all look ridiculous anyways they're all doing their various orbits that was okay it worked it's a bit like the washing up scene in odd man out whereas every other gag is just here's the silly button Nothing builds nicely until, you know, when everybody gets their say. Again, when you've got this ensemble cast, it should be a situation where everybody chips in until a simple task is needlessly complicated. DCT, if we're to stick to the laws of the universe, so in other words, we're going to stick to the laws of, say, a David Croft, Jeremy Lloyd sitcom, what would you like to have seen? What would you like to have seen? I mean, even if you can start like replacing characters, even if you start replacing actors or whatever it may be, what would you like to have seen them do with this particular scenario? I think I'd have liked to have seen Gordon Kay run a bistro in France 
potentially circa sort of nineteen like late nineteen thirties, early nineteen forties, I think, and I, I think it would have certainly benefited. But with that in mind, I think it's always a risk when you're writing a future sitcom because you really need to cement in exactly the mythology that you created. You can't on the sly, like you say, throw in a a Thatcher reference and things. It's got to be. You get the likes of Red Dwarf where there are references, especially in the more recent series, where it makes reference in its own sense to things that in technological terms only just exist now in the present. It's that fine line where you've got to make it acceptably approachable or or relatable, sorry, to present day, where you've got to make whatever you're creating in the future, it's got to have some kind of connection it's like it's like with any character really it's characters have got to be relatable to make it work and it's the same with a setting but in that respect the setting making a setting relatable is is only when you're setting it in that of the unknown or fantastical with red dwarf it, it does that well hitchhiker's kit does that well with this it's solely reliable oh look there's mrs slocum in the future and that's that's more or less it there's nothing grounded i think that the appeal of what could arguably be considered a science fiction sitcom is you've got to have the science fiction there as well in this case you've also got to have the sitcom it doesn't really have either because it's treading lightly on both uh, genres it's treading lightly in both of them and in that respect it falls very flat whereas with Red Dwarf, it constantly throws back in your face where you are, the risk that lives are, are in danger, that there's threats out there, there's abject loneliness in this situation, but also there's a there's quite a grounded mythology and that there's 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 rules, and that's the key I think, and I think that's the issue with with this is that for Croft and Perry doing a sci-fi sitcom, there's no grounded rules. Whereas if you look at a lower low you've got something to work from, you've got a history to build from, you've got a, a farcical element to evolve, and the characters are all individual, interesting, likeable characters. Whereas with this, what what would I change? I think I would make the science fiction element stronger. I would not rely solely on props. It needs to be more risk-taking, both in the science fiction terms and in the comedy terms. And I and I guess I'm asking a lot, bearing in mind this was from 1978, but at this point, there was a chance to be a little bit more daring, if if not with the characters, then with the, with the setting. And it was very watery, the whole thing. Yeah. Okay, well, before we look at the, the closing episodes of Noah, let's just explore this idea about comedy and science fiction. Now, we'll leave Red Dwarf aside because, obviously, we will talk about Red Dwarf and the future sitcom club because we've got a full well it's still going now isn't it There's, we've got 10 series of it to, to look at Ocho I think you recently saw the first episode of Astronaut yes which I think is 1981 is that yes, right yes and it would be interesting to look at all of that because I was saying about identifiable figures Astronaut has three identifiable figures the technocrat the posh coward and the chippy northern working class one that sounds quite interesting and Maybe not innovative, but certainly somewhat original until you realise who wrote it. Not that I'm putting it down, because it's written by Graham Garden and Bill Oddie. And you watch it going, what? Okay, the the big change here is that the posh coward is the nominal leader of the group. But keep watching and thinking, I mean, and especially Barry Rotter is doing his best Bill Oddie. You can't help wonder, 
if maybe they'd written it for themselves. I'm not sure. I'd, I'd have to know more about the history of that show. But it is at least successful sort of saying, look, if, if we're going to do a thing about people in space, let's get down to a small number of characters with an identifiable role. Astronauts does it. Comeback Mrs. Noah, it's all about let's get off the space station and get home. And there's never any sense that they're getting any nearer or any farther away or getting adjusted to their fate. It just seems to be, oh, here's another plan to get off. Oh, it didn't work. Here's another plan. Oh, it didn't work. There's this weird semi-serial thing because the ground crew, there does seem to be this thing. They're thinking up new plans. And somebody actually goes there and visits them on the space station, which I'm not sure isn't a mistake. If you're going to have your Gilligan's Island set up, I know Gilligan's Island, they'd, again, they did get people visiting, but I don't think they did it within the first half of the series. It kind of breaks. It's, it's well, hang on a minute. If you can get somebody up there, yes, they do a little hand-wavy explanation why they can't get everybody off, but you don't really remember the hand-wavy explanation. You just remember, hang on a minute, people can go and see them. We've also got the problem of light bulb men. Uh, Joe Black is gasping. <laughs> A little future echo is Mabel Wheeler, played by Barbara New, the char lady in Yurang, Lord. She was at the bottom of everything. She got everything that was being handed out, she got the last crumbs of. Obviously in Garstang, you can also see um, also Lofty from It Ain't Our Fault, Mum, as well. Yeah, but there's no point to Garstang. Mabel in Yurang, Lord, there's kind of the point about social structure and everybody's got a better except for Mabel that's the whole thing she's at the bottom there is a little bit of pathos uh, Lofty is funny partially because he's, he's in a situation which he's not really cut out for everybody's mean to Garstang here's this here's this here's that slap for Garstang ha <laughs> ha look at him pathetic what's the point being made here but in the fifth episode I was gonna say they have a tea party don't they right it's almost like Garstang turns, he does, when Donald Hewlett's character picks up the phone to answer the uh, telephone communicator within Britannia 7, right? And Garstang can see them hiding. And he almost turns. It's almost like, I wouldn't say going mad, but his personality sort of The changes. problem is that's really poorly staged. We see it happening on the video phone. So it becomes a gag that it's something that's happening to Donald Hewlett. We don't really see it from Garstang's point of view. Hewlett's the one who's who's on the set and he's not being hidden on a television screen. So it doesn't really feel like a gag about him. It didn't make much impact. I was going to say that that could have been his doing Howard, so to speak. In terms of when we discussed Everett Creason Circles and for one episode Howard snaps. Yes, but it would be a bit like just having Martin beaten at the snooker without the seed in the car park, without without really seeing the snooker. <laughs> just at the end, Martin comes out and goes, Oh, Howard beat me because he was upset. It it becomes a gag, oh it's it's happening to Martin. Let's get into context that with John Inman going to ITV to do Odd Man Out that we've previously talked about. Basically, the show had gone on hiatus. John Inman had gone to ITV. It's what you would do with the other performers in it. Basically, Molly Sugden was under contract and they thought, oh, well, we'd better write something for Molly Sugden. So 
Jeremy Lloyd basically said, right, okay, let's do this thing. And I think it was, it seems obviously off the back of Star Wars, everyone's interested in space, but it also seems that it was inspired maybe by the model makers on Blake 7 and Doctor Who to say, oh, what have we got in stock of rockets and things like that? What's spare? What can we use? And it and it feels like it's almost done like that. It does strike me as a kind of show that the BBC special effects guys at the time would have really enjoyed working on. Mooncat, have you ever seen Mystery Science Theatre? I have seen it on occasion, but not because I've never really been interested in the films themselves that they're looking at or that genre, so I've never seen it at any great length. But I Because have there you do it. have gadgets and really cheap effects. Everything in there is very homemade, and you can tell that it's homemade. But the significant difference there is any gadget gag. And in the early series, there's one every episode. They have what's called the Invention Exchange. is a throwaway. It takes a few minutes. So it will be okay to every now and then have a little payoff with, oh, let's press this button to do that and have some amusing thing. But, yeah, it tends to be like 10 minutes of inflatable fart suits. I'd rather like it to be like um, Police Squad when they visit the lab and they see what invention he's got for them this week. You see, you look forward to that bit and you know it's only going to be about two or three minutes. Surely but... if I've got a technician on there, they could have had someone to say, right, here's a technician. I know they've got the scientists, but they also need a technician rather than, you know, gas thing, the maintenance guy. They just need someone to say, right, I can do this, I can invent this. Here's my latest invention. And at least that would sort of perk it up to say, oh, what's he done this week? Well, you know, Ian Lavender's character doesn't fit as part of this having a purpose. He's a television presenter. So he represents some sort of middle-class intellectual, but he doesn't seem to have any skills that will ever be useful to them. He's he's trying to be the typical sort of nationwide reporter, if you local reporter. Yeah, but it's not a rich seam to be mined in a science fiction comedy. Garstang's fine. You've got the guy who's the lowest on the pecking order, the guy with the spanner, and the officer, Mrs. Noah, fine, fish out of water. But you need somebody else who is sort of relevant to a space station situation he's like he's neither a fish out of water he's not getting befuddled by everything the same way mrs noah is but he's neither is he part of this world where you can have this thing of oh don't worry again the guy who introduces the button oh we solved that problem ages ago if he was some sort of bodger some sort of middle level technician so you could have him building the get again he could be like the professor on gilligan's island Oh, you were were talking about that the other day. Well, as it happens, I took some of these spare parts for this device we don't use anymore, and I built one of these. And there you go, you got your gadget gag. I'm thinking of um, John Clegg in Eddie and Half Hop-On. You know, Mr. Larry Dargonner Graham, the smart one, the one with the, uh, the academic brain, who can quite often sort of look at things from a different angle. But I think that, yeah, the problem we've got in this case is that in every one of these situations where you've got an unusual setup, we, the audience, need to have our character there who asks questions because otherwise they'd all just be talking amongst themselves and there wouldn't be any reason for them to say 
at the head of every sentence, as you know, and then give some you know rambling explanation. So we need to have our person there, but that's Mrs. Noah. That's why she's there. And she asks those questions. So, as you say... Yeah, and then um, gets, you're an idiot! As we all know. <laughs> In relation to Mystery Science Theatre, that focuses more on the comedy than the sci-fi to the point where in the opening credits they they say, well, to paraphrase, if you're asking questions, don't worry about it, just relax, it's only a show. And yet the the concept behind it is that it's it's still nice and cosy and there is an element of danger, but at the same time it's it invests more into the comedy side of things and so you're willing to accept you're not going to nitpick at it because there's no good reason to whilst, you, whilst you're enjoying it. Whereas with uh, Come Back this Mrs. Noah, it doesn't have that balance. It doesn't have the comedy and it doesn't have the sci-fi chops either. But yet that's the thing. I mean, if you look at any sci-fi comedy for the most part, I'm... It's often, I mean, for me, it's difficult to think of any sci-fi comedy that isn't about putting people in danger. It's kind of surprising, really. I mean, to consider, I mean, I could be wrong, and I'd be very intrigued to see if anyone can put forward a suggestion, but thinking of a sci-fi sitcom in which there is no element of danger, in which it's just a common standard this is this century, this is how we live, it's relatable for what they do, but there's no danger. I mean, but but it has a comedy, you know, and it's not set in space, it just happens to be set in the future. I can't think of anything. Nothing's springing to mind. The the way that the show is structured, so just accepting it for what it is, and and the fact that you've got all these visual gags, and you've got all the gags about the devices and so on, I think actually Mrs. Noah would have been a really entertaining stage show. I think it would have been probably very enjoyable, bit of interaction with the audience and so on. I think that it's trying to stretch out this plot too much. I don't think it's got legs. It hasn't got legs to sustain one full series or or more. But I think it could have been the kind of thing that... I mean, I think, for example, the Choco Brothers a few years ago actually a show on the stage that was a sort of a Star Wars spoof. And it probably would have been the kind of thing that no television commissioner is ever going to put that on as a, as a half-an-hour sitcom, but if it's something that you see for an evening's live entertainment, it probably would have been very amusing. It almost smacks of the desperations of the, you know, the BBC executives around that time. Are you being served not on? You know, they need a series to fill the gap. So, you know, they have to create something. Even if it plugs a gap or fails or whatever... You know, they've got to have something in there. And it's certainly something that you see time and again whenever a particular theme is suddenly popular, be it quite often it's going to be in the cinema. And then you get a a lot of different, not copycats, but you get similar themes and ideas suddenly turning up here, there and everywhere in popular culture. And so, yeah, of course, it's trying to tap into the popularity of Star Wars before it. Ocho, what do you think about do you feel, is, there, is there anything that you think of that could have potentially saved it? Well, one of the problems <laughs> is you've got an ensemble cast, but there's no real opportunity for them to pair off in different combinations. I'm just thinking, if there's going to be a scene, it's usually going to be Mrs. Noah and whatever Ian Lavender's character's called, or it's going to be the posh guys, and then Garstang at the bottom. You're not going to get a scene between Mrs. Noah and Garstang at a certain point, or between Mrs. Noah and one of the posh guys. I'm just thinking like the Marx Brothers. If you watch Marx Brothers films, one of their great advantages is this kind of rock, paper, scissors 
if Groucho's talking to anybody outside of the group, that person will be Groucho's feed. But if Groucho interacts with any of the brothers, except maybe Zeppo, he will then become the feed man and the straight man. He will have to react to Chico being stupid but wily or Harpo being completely uncontrollable. If Chico and Harpo are bound together, then it's Chico has to react to Harpo being out of control. So you've got these three comic characters, but if you pair them off in different combinations, they will then get different results. And there's no opportunity for that in Mrs. Noah, or at least it's never explored. But who would be really kind of in charge? If Mrs. Noah had a scene with Garstang, well, Garstang's got a bit of technical knowledge. He is a technical guy on the space station. He could try and lord it over Mrs. Noah, but then again, Mrs. Noah isn't the butt of everybody's, not quite everybody's, wrath. That possibility is just never explored. We never get a scene outside of two posh guys, Mrs. Noah and Ian Lavender, and the guy at the bottom. And there was actually a, there was a point at which your light bulb changer, he actually does mention at one point about how he's he's fondly disposed towards Mrs. Noah. And that isn't explored. And you think that could potentially lead to something a little bit later on in the episode or, or later on or whatever it may be. I was thinking, for example, because Mrs. Noah, she's naive when it comes to the space station and, and what goes on there, because obviously it seems any of us would be, because uh, it's not our universe. And yet, when she sees her husband on the screen... Norman Mitchell, and he's quite clearly taken advantage of Mrs. Noah's absence uh, with the uh, the neighbour next door. She seems to have quite a naive reaction to that as well. As if, oh no, he wouldn't be carrying on, there wouldn't be anything like that going on, but clearly there is. Again, it, it doesn't seem to fit with her character. That, and that fails, again, in, in upping any sense of danger or conflict. There's no conflict. I think, not even, when I'm saying danger and risk, I think conflict. I mean, if there was her reacting to that going, oh, wait till I get home, then at least then that's something to look forward to. It's even a reason for her to go back. Come back, Mrs. Noah? Why? <laughs> Why should she come yes. back? Yeah. And yet the end credits are a sort of weird love song from Ian Lavender's character to her. And what the heck's going on in those end credits? That, that yeah. That, I mean, they were in those big Michelin man suits. And, and yeah, it, that's odd. But unfortunately, I've got that damn theme music stuck. Do you know the other day, because I'm, I'm an insomniac, and the other day, about two o'clock in the morning, I was trying to get off to sleep, and I had that bloody theme music stuck in my mind. And not even the instrumental version, but the bloody one with the lyrics in it. And I was ending up sort of analysing the lyrics and thinking, well, why is he singing this romantic sort of love letter to her when, when quite clearly can't stand her in the programme itself? I should just emphasise, by the way, if people are wondering... How come this, this David Croft sitcom has, has passed us by? Why isn't this turning up on gold or, or whatever it is? You can't actually get this show. You can't get this at all. You can't get it commercially. It, you're not going to find it on the satellite or cable box or anything like that at all. The version that we all saw for this recording was uploaded to a far-flung corner of the internet by some kind soul who had recorded it from PBS in America in what looks like the early 1980s, because, of course, you know, PBS had a big hit with Are You Being Served, and then anything that was in any way Are You Being Served related was then getting screened. The reason I mention that is one aspect of those particular recordings which gives it a, a sort of desperately sad full stop at the end of the last episode. <laughs> it's a gone downer ending! What? Well, yes, it... it well, no, but what happens, basically, I'm going to spoil everybody, episode six clearly has... 
one eye on a second series. So if they bring back Mrs. No and everything's fine, then if the public are all paying for more episodes of this, um, then you've got to then engineer some ridiculous situation where she would find herself back in space next year and thinking, oh, bloody hell, not here again. It's not that impossible a situation. You bring her back, and then at the beginning of the second series, you just have a little bit like that um, Simpsons episode where Homer becomes an astronaut. Rather than sort of saying she's trapped there, because they didn't really make enough of that, just, just send her there. Oh, we have to send a normal person to represent humanity. Okay, let's say with the found alien life. Right, we have to have representations of humanity. Oh, no, don't say she's won another competition. Oh, well, we'll just have to send Mrs. Noah. Because otherwise, no, she's out in deep space. DCT, you saw the hangover part three when you were in the States, and they uh, engineer some situation where, blow me sideways, they all find themselves together again in some hapless situation which they never uh, envisaged being in. The end of that episode, episode six, the commander-in-chief, so to speak, who in the first episode, pilot episode, is played by Robert Gillespie, and the series itself is played by Tim Barrett. He's trying to have relations with Vicky Michelle's sister, I think it is. And uh, because he's in like the, the command room, he presses the wrong button and ends up sending them in the wrong direction when they're trying to save them. So the last shot of the last episode is them looking out the window. They haven't yet told Mrs. Noah the, the catastrophic news. And they're just watching planet Earth getting smaller and smaller. Now, if I was in a possession of a recording of the BBC transmission, I suspect that that would have then been followed by Ian Lavender and Molly Sutton singing their happy song and, and the continuity announcer saying, oh, well, maybe Mrs. Noah will be back next year, whatever. But on this particular recording, it just stops. <laughs> you see planet Earth getting smaller and smaller and then done. Black screen. Um, and if <laughs> that really is how that episode ended, Adam. that is such a downer. Why don't they admit the influence? <laughs> Damn you, John Lloyd. We know where you stole that from. Well, there is, is there not a point at which uh, Hewlett and Knowles actually discuss taking the, the cyanide capsules? So maybe that could have been the last scene. After the end credits, it just goes back onto the ship and they realise we're never going to get out of here. And so, and there you go. Uh, and, and that's now that would have been a good ending. That would have been definitely... Downer. Yeah, and here comes Blankety Blank. Not a good way to end the series. It's um, funny that you should mention Blackadder, though, because, I mean, if you look at the future segment of Blackadder's Christmas Carol, that is brief, and you see two alternative versions of this future, of Blackadder, of the Blackadder future. But the humour comes from the way they play with the wording of it. That's another example where, had they done a future series, you know, a sign of, you know, what could have been, potentially... That would have been beneficial in that you know the characters. You know you know what the characters are like. So it could have been completely unrelatable in terms of the plots, in terms of the wording, in terms of but the the silliness of it would have made it work and the, the, the fact that you, you can rely on the benefit of the characters being strong. Whereas from what I can gather, by the end of Come Back Mrs. Noah, you don't want her to come back. <laughs> well, you got your wish. You didn't want her to come back, and she didn't. If Mrs. Noah had come back, what would you have done then? If she just sort of come back and then just been in England, just making cakes? I had a thought. I was hoping. I think that if it had legs, and if if the, if it had figured out what it was doing earlier on, I like the idea that the concept that this housewife of the year or or whatnot would have ended up being a messiah figure. 
I think if it just went a bit sillier, I just think I think the whole thing could have. It turns out, you know, they, they by the end of the first set of series, they crash land on a planet, and it's just the absurdity of this strong northern woman in her fifties, sixties becomes god. That that could have been. I think that could have gone mad. That would have been great. I think that could have really found its course but i mean if you look at croft and perry i mean the the risk-taking element was it wasn't there i know what you mean in terms of of their style of of humor but again we've got to say this is actually a huge risk and it's a risk that didn't really pay off but yeah i mean kudos for actually doing something as wildly different as this because yeah i mean it would have been probably a lot easier and, and I guess more successful to make the kind of show that, say, Molly Suggson was making a few years later, something like That's My Boy or My Husband and I and so on. I mean, the, the fact that you, you've, you've got this ridiculous situation and you've got this emphasis on props and so on, that in itself, I mean, it must be a hell of a strain on everybody involved in the production of it compared to a show where you've got one or two or perhaps even three domestic sets, you know, living room, a kitchen and bedroom. It's nice occasionally that people take risks like that. Occasionally. Not this time. <laughs> so, okay, we don't tend to do star ratings, but DCT, I know you've not had a chance to see all the episodes yet. Are you intrigued to see? Now, especially now that I've pissed away the, the ending for you as well. Are you intrigued to see the next four episodes? I'm pretty sure you mean pisked the, the ending. Ah, very good. This is where I come forward and confess that I was a co-collaborator in insisting that we investigate this. And I don't regret. You've that. you've got worse. You've got worse on your DVD shelf. I mean, you reeled off that list of things that you ordered from Network the other week. True. Do you want to go through those titles again? Well, well, <laughs> well. We, I don't know if this would be a spoiler or not, but of, of future episodes. But some of these you forced upon me. To be fair. Uh, no, 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 honestly, no, no. I, I can't. I can't accept. I can't. I, well, okay. Well, no, yes. I, did, I didn't. I didn't get yes, honestly, or no, honestly. Although that they were the options. <laughs> I uh, I got Yas, my dear. Hey. Ugh, I'm dreading it. No, bearing in mind, I haven't watched all of these yet. Shelley. Have you seen any of Yas, my dear? No, I haven't. It's gathering fair and reasonable dust on the shelf. Thick as Thieves, which intrigues me. For those who don't know, it's Bob Hoskins and, and John Thor in a sitcom, which I'm intrigued to see. We are unusually for a format because we couldn't wait to start talking about Combined Mrs. Noah. We didn't actually address any outstanding business at the beginning of the episode, so we can do that just now. BBC sent a press release with regards to Still Open All Hours, which is going to be on, as we've mentioned, at Christmas time on BBC. And we now have a little bit more information to flesh out what's going to happen in the show itself. This is information from the press release. So David Jason heads a cast as Granville, who has inherited the shop from his beloved but miserly Uncle Arkwright. Granville now runs the shop with his son, Leroy, a cheerful, good-looking lad with more female admirers than Granville ever had. Granville sees him as the shop assistant, but he sees himself as the head of IT. Granville has brought up Leroy himself with the help of a lot of the local women after he arrived on the doorstep as a surprise result of a one-night stand in Blackpool. Linda Barron returns as Nurse Gladys Emmanuel, Stephanie Cole as a black widow, and Maggie Oliverenshaw is back as Mavis, Granville's never-quite-declared old flame. We knew that Mavis was going to be back in it, and we were sort of wondering, is it going to be a Granville Mavis? Were they an item now? But of course, at the time, Mavis was married. 
So, yeah, uh, we will see uh, in due course how this all turns out. But is everybody looking forward to this this uh, new open world? With reservations. I'm worried it's going to be as bleak as even the concept alone of the one Ronnie was. I and, didn't think and the, also Ron- bearing the one Ronnie was that bad of an idea. It was the title that kind of soured it. Underneath was a good solid idea, which is Ronnie Corbett, he's still with us. He's still got his comedy chops. He has a history of being good in sketches. And speaking of comebacks, so to speak, we had the chance to see uh, a sitcom from America, which is based on a British sitcom, and which suddenly gained a guest star for one episode. The British sitcom in question, we previously mentioned in relation to Comeback Mrs. Noah, we mentioned Robert Gillespie. Uh, Robert Gillespie was the head of the household in Keep It in the Family, written by Brian Cook, and that was adapted for uh, American TV as Too Close for Comfort. And in the show, in this particular episode, the head of the household has a guest. His old friend from the UK, Ernie, played by Ernie Wise. Now, I've always had a bit of a bee in my bonnet about Ernie Wise. I think that we need to build a big statue. Not that little one in Morley. We need to build a massive statue and we need to put on Ernie Wise to our eternal shame because we wasted him while we had him. After Eric died, and we you would talk to people, I always thought Eric was the funny one. Well, yes, of course Eric was the funny one. That was his job. Being less funny than Eric Morecambe was Ernie Wise's life's work. But he was still a funny man. That was one thing Eddie Braben realised by making them both funny. He had been the straight man when it was Sid and Dick. And took it from straight man funny man to informed idiot, uninformed idiot, the Laurel and Hardy dynamic. And we had this guy who had a history, again, a history of being funny in sketch comedy, hitting his mark and saying his line and getting his laugh. And there seemed to be some, not quite resentment, but just like, oh, you're still here. The world doesn't need you anymore. We turned our back on him. So it was very interesting to see him in this post-Eric role. And just before I started watching, I thought, you know what, he's going to be terrible. I'm going to see him floundering and overdoing it heartbreakingly he's not he's great he comes in and the energy goes up i'm not saying there's anything wrong with the cast who are already there but he comes in and of course he does a silly little dance and a silly little song and he delivers his lines and everything just glides along nicely he's funny and we had this funny supporting comedy actor and here's the proof post eric he could still do it it does happen so often to performers that they get either typecast or they're simply associated in the public's minds in one particular role. But I suspect that in Ernie's case, yes, it's true that the public would always associate him as wise from Markham and Wise. But I also think that, that the public weren't really given a chance to see him in, in another light because, of course, people who commission television programmes sort of do the public's thinking for them. You know, they sort of think, oh, the public won't accept him because he's part of Markham and Wise. We can't put him in something by himself. Well, why not? I'm not saying that he had to have his own show built around him. I mean, I know he had his own radio show and I would love to hear some of that. But he's good at making other people funny. Even if you take Eric out of the equation in Markham and Wise, he's good with those celebrity guests every time. He's part of keeping that flow going. And we should have just had him occasionally turn up or put him in a secondary supporting role in a sitcom. Ah, 
And it would have been nice just for someone uh, at Beeb or ITV or whoever it was just to say, yeah, let's try this. What the hell? If they could experiment with putting Molly Suggs in space, they could experiment with giving Ernie Wise uh, a solo spot in a sitcom. Why ever not? Yeah, um, it, it but, could have been something like None the Wise. Wise the Nunner. I don't know how true this is, but I did hear a suggestion once that when Eric Markham was recovering from his second heart attack in 1979, and so there was a long period when he wasn't working, there was a suggestion, I think it might have just been floated in the tabloids, that Ernie Wise could team up with Eric Sykes, because then it would be Eric and Ernie again. No, I don't see that working. I was going to say, there's one thing about Sykes and Wise. It sounds rather too much like an optician. It does. Well, that's what they, of course, that's what they say about uh, Cannon and Ball, Harper and Derbyshire, or um, uh, but... Idler and Moranis. If anyone's ever seen Splitting Airs, which uh, I wouldn't recommend. Uh, do you know? I've, I've actually, I've been, I am still trying now, and I actually started the attempt. Around about six weeks ago, I am still attempting to download one copy of Nearly Departed. The Eric Idle is a ghost and nobody can see him except for the the old fella in the household and so on from 1989. Apparently there was one it episode... It turned up on BBC One. It did, and I, I, yeah, I accidentally stumbled across it one evening waiting for a by-election result. Uh, which... And you will get the theme tune stuck in your head. Oh, I, I, just, I can still remember it. I can still remember it now. And I've only ever seen it once in 1989. It's still there. Yeah, nobody can see us except the old man. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if I ever manage to actually download that, then <laughs> we'll be doing it. And I've got a horrible feeling that I may end up doing that uh, episode myself. We've got lots of nice bits and pieces lined up uh, from now until the end of the year. We're going to be talking amongst other things about Open All Hours itself before the new version because we spoke about Open All Hours a long time ago when we were on the radio but a lot of people wouldn't have caught that so we're going to restage that conversation so to speak. We're going to be talking about UK and US shows so shows that come from here to there and vice versa and we're also going to be discussing revivals. We're going to be looking at free shows which came back after a sort of 20 or 25 year gap which also was going to tie in with us having a look at still open hours at Christmas time. So that's some of the things that we've got coming up before the end of the year. We'll talk in just a second about what we're going to discuss next week. However, I am now going to surprise the sitcom club with what we're going to be doing at Christmas time. Gentlemen, I have something here. I was going to say I have something in my hand. I have something here which you're all going to be very, very excited about. And we're going to take full advantage of this. I have... Acquired from eBay some time ago, an official On the Buses board game. And I would like to propose that we play the official On the Buses board game on the air for our Christmas special oh. sitcom. <laughs> Can I go one step further? I mean, would you even dress up as Blakey or something? Well, I am working on a potential idea for a board game podcast. So if this could be a gateway drug. <laughs> into a gateway spin-off. I have been working for some time on collecting a number of board games based on television shows, mostly sitcoms, to be fair, uh, including A Lower Low and Kojak, another lesser-known sitcom, uh, and uh, Blankety Blank. Oh, oh, hang on a second. Are you saying that there is a Kojak board game? That I have here, yeah. There is a Kojak board game. I've seen it before. Fantastic! Oh, um, I, I actually I mentioned to Ocho the other day there is a murder she wrote 
computer game for the PC, which is available now at Morrison's at only £7, and I haven't yet. But I've it. also got the board game of uh, Sporting Triangles. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> ITV's knockoff A Question of Sport. This is brilliant, this gets better. <laughs> if only well, there was a yeah, board okay, game of well, starting blocks. Oh, don't, no, don't, don't talk to me about Is that going to remain a mystery then? People are wondering what we're talking about. If, if you want to know, if, okay, you have to Google that. If you want to know what starting With blocks is and Chris why it upsets Tarrant. me so much, I, I'll, we'll discuss that when we do the, the, the Christmas. I have Bob's Full House as well. Oh, well, now, you see, Bob's Full House, that, that makes more sense because that's, you know, like a regular sort of game show asking questions. Yeah, okay, yeah, makes sense. Um, I have Blankety Blank. Does it have the checkbook and pen included? It has like a faceless Terry Wogan on the front, which is slightly odd. <laughs> What do you mean, Teddy Morgan with his face erased? Well, it's it's yeah, it's it's so just got blank. It's kind of like a as if he'd been cloned badly. Does anybody has anybody got any particular requests for which character they want to play? They've been really really hung up on on, on being Arthur. For Can me. I be the goose? <laughs> Can I be the guy who replaced Reg Varney that once? Larry Martin. Change my mind. <laughs> I have a confession, by the way. I am just about to apply for tickets to go and see, and this kind of ties in with what we were saying earlier about shows returning after prolonged periods of time. Uh, I'm about to apply for tickets to see Birds of a Feather. Oh, lovely. (laughs) Okay, and are you... Are are they gut punch noises? Oh, <laughs> are are you actually an existing fan of the show? I, you know what, I enjoyed it uh, on its original run, and I, I'm I'm fond of Marks and uh, Gran generally, and I I enjoyed, I enjoyed, I yeah, I used to watch it with the family, and um, there was there was one bit that always stood out to me in mind was um, the answer machine message, just ah. Just as that as a tiny gag, I just always appreciated. So yeah, I'd, I'd be. I never saw. I've never seen the theatre run, but you know, it, it had legs. It did well. I enjoyed it, and I just thought I, I've got to take one for the team. You know, the BBC site, everything sells out extremely quickly, or it's up north, which is away from where I am. So I, I'm looking at SRO audiences, which is uh, particularly good for uh, to investigate. I mean, there is also a BBC One comedy game show pilot. Nina Conti and her puppets. The Kumars as well. Kumars, yeah, that's right. Kumars is coming back, isn't it? Yeah, the Alan Titchmarsh show. That's not really a sitcom, though. <laughs> um, MC Hammer Needs Your Clips. What? Explain. Uh, MC Hammer's Big Shot Academy. A collection of some of the worst performances caught on camera, and also some of the very best, in brackets, yours hopefully. What, they want an audience for this? So... Well, you're going to go along to the studio and you're going to sit and watch MC Hammer say, look up at that monitor and watch some clips that we've downloaded from YouTube. I, I could do. Is this Broken Britain? I do mean, you want a full report? I mean, I could go and, like, I could do it. Yeah, do yeah, do yeah, 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 definitely do. Could you go and see this? I mean, honestly, genuinely, I'd like you to go and see this and, and let us know what it's like. Because if it's anything like what I've just described, then it's going to be horrific, surely. I'm kind of sport for choice a bit here because I've, I've got Dancing on Ice... I've got the Sarah Millican television programme. Singles 50 and over wanted for this one-off charity special. Which I think is patronising from the sounds of things. But So obviously it's like the old blind date then. Well that's already happened. There was a pilot episode, was it not called Old Flames, hosted by Jimmy Tarbuck? 
that went out once on BBC. Didn't become a but series. I, I, I can't think of... I mean, what, what, so what, Paddy McGuinness is going to go up to two old people and go, why, why don't you get together? Why, go on, go on, touch him. Touch him? Hey, chappy. Oh, cheeky. Whatever. Well, you've just saved me the ball of watching. Because that's, that's a perfect description of what it's going to be. Like. Why, don't, why don't you put your teeth in the mouth? Oh, hey. Um, it's just basically what it would be. If I, if that's ITV's Christmas schedule, then I'm going to stuff the turkey. Gentlemen, we should we should wrap up proceedings. Well, before gonna... we go, oh, yeah. Yeah. one thing that's been brought up, we haven't mentioned Spets in a while. Yay! But what actually I have been mentioning over the last few, every time there's been an opportunity, and I think I'm going to mention it again, uh, back in the days when he was an actor, Jeremy Lloyd was in the running for the part of Toby Mears in Callan. Oh, I thought you were going to mention it. It went to Anthony Valentine instead. Callan is the new Spets. At some point, we are going to have to do a sitcom club that discusses Spats, Callan, and Dick Turpin. Just for the hell of it, so you can get this out of your system. I never said Dick Turpin was a sitcom, but it's good. I'm also going to review Sporting Triangles as well, if I can get my hands on a copy. And I do have some bad news. Derek is currently back in production on the second series. Well, I'm a big fan of German police shows. Ah, oh dear, as if the ending of Comeback Mrs. Noah wasn't a downer enough. Anyway, thank you very much indeed for your time, gentlemen. It's been lovely to have all four of us back together again. So next week, we're going to be going all Channel 4 once again. DCT, I'm going to give you 15 seconds to talk about Nightingales. Nightingales, regarding three Night Watchmen, played by Robert Lindsay, David Threlfall and James Ellis, respectively, a Channel 4 sitcom from the early 90s, which was more or less underrated, but in retrospect is quite a classic. Really? You did that with uh, two seconds to spare. Is there anything you want to say for two seconds? Night Watchmen. And in the meantime, if you've missed any of the previous episodes of the Sitcom Club, because we've been going since April this year, you can find them all at sitcomclub.com. You can now subscribe to uh, the feed in iTunes directly, or you can pop the XML feed into your preferred podcatcher, and all the previous episodes are in there. And don't forget, also, you can follow us at the Sitcom Club on Twitter. Uh, let us know anything, any feedback you want to let us know about the shows, or if there's any particular shows that you'd like us to discuss in the future, just tweet us there. So, my thanks to Ocho. Goodbye. Bogenstrovia. Bye. And DCT. Cheerio. This is Mooncat signing off and saying thanks very much indeed for listening to the Sitcom Club. <laughs>